0: tell my students actually form and function follow experience. That's a good one.
1: So, how do we start?
2: Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design. And much more. The magic of living a happy life. Don't we all dream about it? Is there a thing like this, though? Or is a common sense knowledge that chasing happiness is the most effective recipe for living a very unhappy life true? Anna Paul Mayer is an assistant professor of the Department of Industrial Design at the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands, a co-director of the Delft Institute of Positive Design and a board member of the Design Research Society Special Interest Group on Design on Wellbeing, Happiness and Health. Fascinated by the interplay of people, design and technology, Anna's transdisciplinary background combines studies in psychology at Humboldt University Berlin, a PhD in engineering at TU Berlin and the University of Luxembourg, and years of research and teaching in design. Before her PhD studies on prospective design of human technology interaction, she worked at MIT Lab on technologies that improve quality of life across the lifespan. Anna is one of the instigators of Positive Design, the scientific study of design for well-being, and she keeps on advancing our understanding of positive and also negative effects on products on people's psychological well-being. She studies how to design for good life and how to assess design-mediated well-being. Anna, so great to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Anna, interesting happiness. How did it start? It goes
0: parallel to the trajectory of my studies and career and two decades ago I studied psychology and was really focusing on cognitive psychology and then I started human technology interaction, more cognitive ergonomics and my first focus was really more in terms of human factors. So very classic dual test paradigm. That was really popular back then, right? Well, it still is, and it still is very important. If you think about, for example, the automotive sector, you have to know how many tasks can you do next to the primary task of driving a car. If you have a secondary task like changing the navigation system or talking to a passenger, unwrapping a chewing gum, how distracting is it? So that's more human factors, very much related to usability issues.
1: So all the buttons in the right places.
0: Exactly. And then... During my PhD, it shifted more into the user experience side and engagement and hedonic aspects, the book of phonology or Patrick Jordan, Design for Pleasure Products. So pleasure was really big and user satisfaction, but it was all still within this little realm of the interaction of a user, a user with a system, a technology And I think over the years, so much knowledge was gained on how to design systems that are easy to use, that are also fun to use, but what about that are meaningful to use and that really have an impact in people's lives? So for me, that was really a logical step from focusing on usability issues into making it pleasurable. And then more the question of why do we have these systems and how do they affect our lives? And is it really about user satisfaction or is it more that the technology maybe doesn't have to be so prominent, but can it be more a facilitator to our lives? So for me, it was more progression. And I think in the field in general, also in in a way from ease of use, efficiency to fun of use and engagement And now we're at a point where it's more about meaning and experiences and about human well-being. So from user satisfaction to human well-being. And that makes everything much more complicated, much more complex, much more challenging. And that's why I embrace it. (laughs) (laughs) So during my PhD, I focused on uh, more hedonic aspects like aesthetic appreciation, for example, and emotional experiences, And then I really had the fortunate opportunity to come to TU Delft as an assistant professor to set up a research agenda and to explore, is it possible, and if so, how to design for well-being. So how do products or services, designed artifacts influence our lives in a positive or also in a negative way? How can we design for it? And how can we assess it? So it's really the understanding, the design strategies, and also the assessment afterwards. And Delft is the perfect place for it <laughs> because they have open mind and really also hear the interdisciplinary community to dare such a project. When I started out, I actually was faced with quite some skepticism from my peers, mm-hmm. also in the scientific community. They're like, oh, Anna, you know, already emotional design, I don't know still if I really believe it, but maybe, but well-being, come on, that that's going too far. Mm-hmm. Or some also said like, oh, you know, isn't that a bit uh, corny? Is it possible? Is it scientific at all? Uh, you know, isn't this a risk also for your research reputation? <laughs> But I was intrigued by it. And also, given my background, you know, so in psychology, engineering, and design, I thought maybe I'm fairly well equipped to at least give it a try. There's one quote from Daniel Falkman that I love already from 2004. He said, In order to stay relevant, I might not be phrasing him precisely, but I think in order for HCI, human computer interaction, to stay relevant, it has to realize that it's leaving the moral aimlessness of usability. And I really like it because in a way, if you know how to design something easy or fun, it does not mean that this is necessarily a meaningful thing to design for. And there are big trends in terms of social design, transformation design. EU projects are all about societal challenges. You know, society talks about more well-being issues and work-life balance. So, Perhaps the momentum is right also for the design discipline to at least be courageous enough to explore how is it doing? How is it affecting people's lives?
1: I have to ask for listeners like me who are out of this field. You keep mentioning three things and I would like to understand how they are related. You said about designing for meaning we're starting talking about happiness and there's also well-being weaved into this somehow. So how these three concepts relate.
0: Thank you for your question because I think it's important also to make sure that when I talk about happiness, I do not talk about happiness solely as the emotion of happiness. Uh-huh. So it's not only about a momentary joyful experience of jumping up and down, clapping your hands and having smileys everywhere. That might be part of it, but For my understanding, happiness, and I use it here interchangeably as the concept also of subjective well-being, is a combination of pleasurable experiences and meaningful experiences. Okay. There are tons of definitions of what is happiness. And also with my students in the first class, I always say, okay, let's talk about what is happiness to you and how will we understand it in this course. And actually, my favorite definition is by Paul Dolan. Because it's the most concise. And I think he really nailed it by saying happiness
2: is experiences of pleasure and purpose over time. How I understand what you're saying is that you sort of refer to this Aristotelian division between hedonism and eudaimonia. So it's an art of living pleasurable life and living the meaningful life. Mm -hmm. And this is a combination there in a way. That's how I would understand it, based on the literature
0: in philosophy, but also psychology. For example, one of the pioneers in the study of positive psychology, the study of happiness, and that's in a way also how we brought the term positive design, the study of design for happiness. Martin Seligman, he said for people to flourish. In his theory of well-being, he identified five determinants of flourishing. It's the PERMA model. Mm -hmm. And PERMA is the acronym of the five determinants, P for pleasure, E, engagement, R, relationships, M, meaning, and A, accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And I often use his theory, believe me, there are many, many theories out there, because he also includes pleasure in it. And he also said, well, positive psychology is a discipline that only describes, does not prescribe. It only describes empirically what is found, what does make people happy. In design, it's, of course, a different challenge because in a way we make decisions along the way and we give direction or we offer tools for people to use or not to use. But in a way, we always prescribe to a certain extent With my colleague, Peter Desmet, we developed a framework for positive design where we actually took all three directions that we found in philosophy, also in psychology, what are ingredients to design for. And we thought you can take three different angles for positive design, one being design for pleasure, which is more about the momentary experiences of um, more positive than negative emotions, although negative emotions are also important. Design for personal significance, so that's a bit more where you go into the meaning side and design for personal values and goals, but also design for virtue. And here we come back to Aristotle, and that is more how can you design for people to act in an honorable, virtuous way, and that is also more a question on a societal level. Mm -hmm. So then you think about what effect do I have with my behavior in society, we say that positive design is basically in the sweet spot of the three. So ideally, in a design process, you will have different emphasis depending on the project, depending on the client. But at least at one point, you should look at all three angles. And as the minimum, make sure that you do not violate the others. So if your emphasis is more on pleasure, fair enough. But do also give it a moral check. Are you introducing any vices in contrast to virtues or... Instead of personal significance, is it pointless? (laughs) Uh, Or the other way around, if you focus on personal significance, is it also about perhaps societal significance? Or does it violate universal values? Or does it introduce pain that is not resolved in the short or in the long run? Mm -hmm. So these are questions we believe that people, to a certain extent, should ask in a design process. So here we enter
2: a field of moral questions in this world of making choices as what technologies what solution we give to people is designer responsible for the ethical choices or is he or she more an executioner of the decisions of other people like business for example As you said, there are many people who make decisions
0: along the way. So it might be the company that issues a design brief and finances the product or the project. There's the designer and there are also the end users. And you have to look at every decision along the way. And everyone contributes to a certain extent to the ethics of these decisions. I don't think that designers will be the moral guardian who will dictate what to do and what not to do but as I said to a certain extent they do prescribe they suggest behavior the question might be how transparent can they be while doing so
1: it sounds to me like this question is valid in many more contexts than just designers like you I mean I can think easily of engineers facing the same issues right I don't want to pull the old cliche about atomic energy but you know it's been there forever
2: That's true. Sometimes I'm curious whether all the people involved in the projects think of the responsibility that they take by launching something. Well, one thing that I believe
0: is slightly different in positive design is that we actually take an effect-driven approach. That means from the start, we try to foresee what effect we want to foster, we want to stimulate. And with that, it is not only about making it easier because that's not the effect, right? That is one part of designing the specifics of a feature maybe, but an effect might be I want to design for autonomy or I want to connect people or I want to support people in showing more acts of kindness. So that should be the guiding vision in your design process. In general, in positive design, we say an umbrella term for all design or design research or design projects that have the explicit aim to stimulate people's well-being. So that is already in the definition, and that should be guiding in your design decisions along the way. So that might also be a safety net to not be completely off. But of course, you also should ask the questions, well, could this be used or might it also have some side effects that we do not want? Or what are other people, what other stakeholders are part of of using this device or this project? Mm -hmm. I think by taking an effective approach, you already change a way of not only saying, okay, I design a chair and then let's see what happens, but you actually focus on the experience. So that's also why I once told you that maybe form and function will follow experience more than the other way around. And don't get me wrong, form and function will be crucial for the success in the end. So I'm not saying that usability or UX is less important or less necessary. To the contrary, you have to get it right. But it is important, what do you design for? And sometimes people from practice say, we might never get all the way up to designing for well-being because we run out of budget or we run out of time. We never get so far. Well, you know, maybe you need to flip it around and start at the top and think of what is really important. And then maybe some features might not be as important and you can just leave them out. But you then still need to get the details, the itsy-bitsy aspects right in the end. But it might be wise to start from the top because then at least you have that in the project as well.
1: It's amazing how many times in very different contexts and in very different yes. seasons under different umbrellas, we have this question, but what is it for in the first place? Yeah. And yeah, we have another one. Mm-hmm. It's amazing.
2: Absolutely. And actually, I think that this is the huge change that is happening right now in the field of design as I see that. When both of us started in it, the whole thing was the technology was so bad That like our goal was to do as much as we were able to to make it be reasonably acceptable for people because the computers were crashing, the power of computation was so little that in a way the satisfaction and usability and ease of use they were our vision. There was no space for any other vision because (laughs) you know that was the thing that we were able to do, and I think that in a way this is still living in many design education programs, meaning that, of course, the designers understand that it's important to do user research, but much more rarely it happens that they actually create a design vision of Mm -hmm. where they want to get before they start designing. So this is a huge shift that is starting to happen, but I don't think that it has happened yet. Possible.
0: But as I said, you also do need to have the knowledge on how to get things right. Bill Buxton, I think, was it in his, uh, Sketching right of his book? Sketching Exactly. I once attended a workshop of his where he was still writing the book. And I loved how he said, engineering is getting the design right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Design is getting the right design. Yes. Is it? Should I get it yeah, right? Getting the right design um, and the
2: design right. Yes.
0: Exactly. And we need both. But you see um, some design schools are picking up the idea of design for well-being or also other fields in this direction like social design, for example. So what are we designing for? Design for behavior change, design for health. There are many more tailored disciplines, I would say, within the design field that now ask the question, what are we designing for? And also in industry to a certain extent. So as I said, I received some skepticism from researchers when I started on Design for Happiness and Well, being Well, don't even get me started how industry was reacting to that. <laughs> yes, because of I've course been the question there. Was the- I was about yeah. to bring this subject
1: if you didn't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because, of course, their question was, how will this affect sales next quarter? And that's an impossible question to ask in a way because it might not happen next quarter. It might not be necessarily the direct consequence that your product made a person happy, but maybe your product facilitated experiences and activities that then in turn made the person happier or more content. But one thing that is different in design for well-being is you need a long breath because we aim for long-term effects. So that's a challenge in terms of design vision. That's a challenge in terms of evaluating, assessing the effects of your design and that's also a challenge for businesses, right? 2018, both Apple and Google, in their annual developers conference, announced that they would put digital well-being or digital wellness, uh, that's how they called it respectively, at the core of their product development efforts. Mm. And they have now digital well-being teams in their organization. So on the one hand, this was, of course, consequence to see what happens with the other big IT companies. Are we harming people? Are we distracting them from spending their time well? That's also the Center of Humane Technology by Tristan Harris, for example, the former Google ethicist. So you also see that in corporate organizations, people are now putting digital wellness or digital well-being at the center of attention. And I think that indicates a shift in mindset in businesses. And with that, we'll then also follow in design education, because many schools still do what business is waiting for, their expectations. And we came more from the research side where we offered tools and methods in that way. And probably the combination of it will support more work in this direction
2: and also more education mm-hmm. in this direction. Yeah, what you said put me on another train of thought. There is this phenomenon that we as humans experience, which is one of the heuristics that we've got. I think that Dan Kahneman calls it hedonistic treadmill or hedonistic adaptation. Mm. This is a huge challenge for businesses in terms of designing for well-being or for happiness because often businesses think about creating those wow effects, right? But then they forget that people get very quickly used to that solution and they see this as a new normal. As a consequence, businesses think, okay, we are not going to invest more in this experience design because people get used to it and, you know, they talked about it for a month, but the next month they, they don't talk about it anymore. So that doesn't work. But this is not true, really. It works. It just works long term. How do you see that?
0: <laughs> well, thank you for bringing it up because hedonic adaptation is actually very important in the work that I do. Hedonic adaptation is a phenomenon that we as people, as humans, all experience... Hedonic adaptation works both ways, in the positive and in the negative way. So if we have a negative experience, in theory, eventually we will come back to a personal baseline of our well-being. People have a different baseline of their happiness level, which in the idea of a hedonic treadmill, which I can come to in a second, was not completely correct because here they thought it was a neutral baseline, but it's actually a somewhat positive baseline and it's somewhat different for every person. You're talking about happiness set point, right? Yeah, so that's the baseline that people tend to return to after changes in a positive or in a negative way. So imagine your boyfriend breaks up with you tomorrow or today. You're miserable. (laughs) You think you will never recover. Well, (laughs) obviously.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Damn, now I have to recover.
0: (laughs) The good news is eventually you will get back on track. But indeed, as you said, the challenge for design is this also works in the positive direction. So the other example then would be you're on the day of your wedding. You think, oh, this is the happiest day of my life. It will stay like that forever. Well, actually, empirical data shows that the boost of happiness in a marriage lasts for approximately two years. And then you're back on your... (laughs) On your personal baseline level in that regard.
1: in the US, you start looking for a new (laughs) part. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, this will get cut out.
0: (laughs) Hedonic adaptation is a good thing because if we have a negative experience, eventually we will recover. We learn how to cope. We will learn how to adapt the change in our life. People who actually had a very bad accident and end up in a wheelchair, for example, research shows that a few years later, they are back on their personal happiness level. However, this also applies to positive changes. So there have been some studies done with people who win the lottery. Lottery winners are not happier people, sometimes even to the contrary, if too much money changes their life and their relationships to others in a negative sense. But positive change can also be, as you said, a wow effect to a new product. So people think if I have a bigger screen, if I have a golden car, I will be happier. If I'm rich, I'm happier. Well, guess what? we also tend to adapt to these changes. It is a challenge to business because we tend to adapt to products more quickly than we do to experiences. So as you said, that businesses say that we don't want to invest in experience, I would say "Ah, that's a wrong understanding of it because people adapt slower to experiences. This is actually one of the design strategies that I recommend in my work trying to design for experiences rather than only for the material object of it. In fact, there have been studies done by Van Boven and Nicolao initially with the experience recommendation saying, if you want to increase your happiness, don't invest in new products, but invest in experiences. And as a designer, you could say, oh, so do not design anymore <laughs> but actually the studies when you look at it they had a little flaw in their experimental setup because they only looked in a the binary distinction between material acquisitions on the one extreme so acquisitions that we had for the sake of their materiality and life experiences on the other extreme like traveling like dining out going to a concert spending time with your friends And while contrasting these two, experiences are more favorable for your well-being. So I replicated the initial study by introducing a third condition because I don't think it's a dichotomy of material and experience in the extremes, but it might be a continuum. And on the continuum can be experience enablers, products that enable experiences, that facilitate it. And what I found was actually that experience enablers – are more similar to life experiences and both have a well-being advantage to material acquisitions. Mm -hmm. So it's really the intention of the person when acquiring the product, how do they see it? How do they view it? Do they have a bike just because it is the most expensive, the most flashy, the lightest one, so only focusing on the materiality of it? Or is it because For them, this is a symbol of autonomy and freedom because they want to be more fit and want to be more active. Is the product a means for an activity? You are more probably successful, especially in the long run, if you design for experiences and activities because people adapt to it slower. People can allocate more meaning to it. You're less likely to compare it also to other products. Because experiences are more difficult to compare and they're less tied to a monetary value and they age more gracefully. That's <laughs> that has also been found. They might be distorted to a certain extent, but the vacation you had 10 years ago, maybe it was crappy when you were there and things went wrong. But now it's very nostalgic when you look back and you think it was the greatest time ever. You know, that sometimes memory works in our favor. Hmm. Also, the positive adaptation is actually good because it means that we want to grow, that we increase our expectations on how can we perhaps become a better person, how can we become more skillful. But if you apply the expectations to consumption, you end up in a hedonic treadmill or so in a consumer treadmill. And that means you it needs to be bigger, faster, more expensive, You need to acquire more and more and you live in material affluence, but it will not make you happier. It is bad for your bank account. It is bad for the environment. And it's actually also in a way detrimental for your well-being. That is something where a designer, as a design discipline, you have to find, how can I break out of this treadmill, out of this direction? One way is indeed to Again, look for how can you design for experiences? How can you aim for long-term effects? How can you design for values? Because if it
2: is meaningful for people, people will adapt slower to it. And they will forgive you this adaptation, right? Because if it's aligned with how they want to see themselves in the world, they will stay longer with you because you amplify how they want to see themselves.
0: Yeah, I fully agree. And that actually should be already part of the design process. That you understand what are people's values. Can you support people in living the life they want to live? Even Seligman, he actually has a perma profiler because we need a little bit of everything. So we need a little bit of pleasure. We need a little bit of meaning. And he defines it as meaning in terms of the greater good beyond individual interests, greater than yourself. We need a little bit of everything, but people have personal preferences on what is important to them. So it doesn't mean that you need everything to the same extent. Mm -hmm. Here you can design for character strengths and character strengths or signature strengths. And that's the work of Peterson and Seligman again, means that people are very good at certain virtues you could say for some people it's more important to be very kind for some it's very important to be fair for some it to be socially responsible so there are different virtues some are more about civic strengths some are more about emotional strengths some are more about cognitive strengths and people have signature strengths in different areas and actually the one key to happiness might be to understand what are you good at and try to find different ways of living in line with these strengths and these values in different domains of your life Mm -hmm. if for example fairness is one of your strengths then maybe you should become a lawyer or a judge if kindness is important to you then maybe caretaker or salesperson could be a good profession. If you if love for learning is and curiosity is important to you, then maybe research could be a promising path. So it's a lot of understanding what is important to me and how can I live the
2: life that is important to me. When you were talking, I was kind of having this Business client of mine in the back of my head saying, Yeah, but we design for everybody. How can we choose the values and the virtues if we are supposed to aid five million people? How would you approach that? Well,
0: I think there are two different extremes that you can go when you design for well being. One is you design for everyone and you focus on the universal values, or you look at the empirical data what are most people? Happy with, or where do they find what is favorable for their well being? Or you extremely tailor it to a specific user group. But even if you tailor to a specific user group, usually you find the underlying values also there, and you can apply it to multiple target groups, Mm -hmm. so to say. So when you design for well being, yes, it is subjective, and yes, people have different emphasis, but there are universal principles behind it. And that's what you need to understand. And then you can reach more people with that. The design is not the solution itself. You need people's involvement for the design to have an effect. Let's take the bicycle example again. You you will only experience freedom or autonomy, or you will only become healthier when you
2: cycle. Yeah, it doesn't help when it's standing out there in the corridor, right? (laughs) Yeah. So that would be the material acquisition, right? But well-being is a dynamic
0: concept where you need to be actively involved in and in a way to take ownership of the experience. So that's why I don't think that you will ever design an object that makes people happy full stop. It's an invitation for experiences. And also earlier you asked, you designed for meaning. And I think More important is to design for meaningful experiences. So it might not only be the noun of meaning that is important and that's closely linked to the moral issues and the ethics of it and the contribution to society as a whole, but it's also what is meaningful to people and what can make meaningful little differences.
2: Speaking of the meaningfulness, there is also a way to design to make your employees happy. So I think that for me, it's two questions in one. Mm -hmm. One is whether you have some insights on happiness for employees. And the other thing is that often companies think that if they make, again, the physical environment pleasurable, swings and confitures and fruits and stuff like this. And they will make people come the hours they want to. So they sort of aid all the wishes of a certain group of employees. This will make people happy. But when you look at it, actually, this is not necessarily the case. Often people get bored rather than happy. So how do you see the challenge for companies of building Meaningful happiness for their employees.
0: What I said earlier that it's not the static design that is the solution. So it's not only the pink wall. Although windows have shown to be (laughs) important, (laughs) but it's not only to have a ping pong table that will make everyone happy. That's the hedonic adaptation again, right? So if you go to I don't know headquarters of Google or Facebook, then everything looks fun. But at a certain point, you take that for granted. A lot of startups or tech companies focus on really fun work environments, but it's not necessarily the static environment as such. It might be indeed some changes like having one day a week where you can do your personal projects. These type of interventions are important. It might be something... Where you connect co workers together, that they are personal um, social resources for one another, those can really make a difference. But I don't think it is only on the static environment because people will adapt to it and they will expect more.
1: But does it doesn't mean, I assume, that you can get away with having a wrong office. One very rich client of mine, they said, they will not supply the office with water. People have to take care of it themselves. Not even talking about coffee, which I think is pretty standard these days. People expect that whether this is a hedonistic need or a basic that I leave it for future to (laughs) decide, but I think, you know, just drinking water is something that should be supplied, right?
0: Here, you talk about expectations and standards. So, maybe your client should look at Maslow's pyramid <laughs> of needs and whether he wants to focus on the basic needs of shelter and water. <laughs> it's a question of standards and expectations. Maybe in Western societies, you can take it as a given that you are offered water or coffee in your work environment. I don't know if in a fashion company in Bangladesh, if they're offered water or if they have to bring it themselves. So it is a question of expectations. Mm -hmm. Of course, if we are fortunate enough to live in a safe workplace, where we are offered the basic needs, as in Maslow's Pyramid of maybe water and shelter, I don't know if coffee was in there. Um, <laughs> oh, in the Netherlands, definitely, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> no work without coffee. <laughs> but if that is already secured, then you can think of more higher order ways to foster well-being. And that might be the social connectedness or the self-actualization. In a way, as you said earlier, that people in the old days were happy when technology worked at all, or if they did not feel completely stupid on how to use it. So they were grateful if it was usable. That was back then almost like a satisfier. The better it was, the more satisfied people were. I'm referring to the Kano model of user satisfaction. Now you can say that a must-have requirement. So you're not really going to delight people by saying, "Well, it is actually." Usable. They take that as a given. Now it's more is it useful or is it meaningful? What do I get out of it? That eventually might become the next must have requirement. And I think that's why now big companies like Google or Apple think of okay, it's not only that it's easy to use. People have higher expectations on the product. That's why more companies now think about social responsibility. We talked about what can research offer, what is business asking for, but actually society is asking for it. And not only because we have societal problems, but also because expectations and the voices of consumers and end users are getting louder and asking for different things.
2: We talked a lot about designing for pleasure and for hedonistic needs and for activities. But not every design should be smoothly positive. Mm -hmm. Actually having a little bit of trouble along the way Mm -hmm. is something that's desired because then we appreciate the end much more. How do you see this as a part of experience design process?
0: It's nice that you bring it up because in the beginning I said we gained so much knowledge from the early days of usability and user experience that now we are capable to take the next step. That being said, it does not mean that the design guidelines that applied for these fields necessarily apply one-to-one now in design for well-being. Because, for example, efficiency might not be effective at all. Mm -hmm. Maybe you need some friction. Maybe you need some inefficiency. Inefficiency can be quite beautiful. Also what you said, appreciation is important. So coming back to hedonic adaptation, a lot of my work focuses on slowing down hedonic adaptation and getting people to notice what is good and perhaps even being more grateful, being more aware. And one of the things is appreciation. Sometimes we only appreciate things when we don't have them anymore. So, for example, again, imagine your boyfriend breaks up, you're heartbroken, and suddenly you love him so much. (laughs) Or when we're sick, we suddenly realize how important health is. Or when your phone breaks, you realize, oh no, I should have done the backups, I should have treated it better, I should (laughs) have gotten the protective case. I actually used the idea of mental subtraction, something that was found in psychology, in design. So how can you mentally subtract what you take for granted to wake people up again to appreciate? We live in an economy where you say the consumer is the king, the client is the king. Do you say that? The Kundeskönig in German. Or you say service everywhere, every time everything should be available and it should be efficient. Well, how about rejecting service? So in one project I did, we actually had a little of critical designs. Uh, we did a array of projects to, to design for savoring, to cherish the moment, to be in the moment, and we hacked Senseo coffee machines mm-hmm. <laughs> for the simple reason that it was hackable. We wanted to change the ritual of coffee drinking. One was that we implemented a random seed that every what was it, 10th coffee, was rejected. (laughs) It is, of course, important that you communicate the design in such a way that the user does not think like, oh, the product is broken, what a stupid product, or I don't know how to use it. So it needs to be clear that this is on purpose. And uh, you had two ways to get your coffee. Either you had to engage in a little game where you had to crack a code, so you had to invest a little bit of effort, or there was another button that you could press for one minute and wait. And envision, anticipate the taste of the coffee. But you could not press it and then go to the restroom and come back. You need to stay there, wait for one minute, keep the button pressed. And that is not efficient. That's not delivering the service, but it might be needed to uh, wake people up again, to appreciate it. We had one project by Lisa van der Merver, a design student, and now she graduated, who designed, in a course that I did on design for savoring, a tea mug for drinking a warm beverage in the morning and rather than for efficiency coffee on the go you have the lid on top and you have a cup holder on your stroller or in the car or whatever she designed a tea shell it looks like a shell that you have to hold with both hands and it does not have a handle you cannot do anything else so you cannot multitask because if you take one hand away it loses balance and it spills <laughs> Um, So it was actually designed on purpose to hold it in such a way that for this little moment, you do nothing else. You just focus on savoring your tea. So we have a number of these examples already out there, but I think it is important also to, again, think of what is the effect that you want to achieve, and it might be to introduce a moment of mindfulness, or if it is about getting people to appreciate or to take notice that maybe you actually need to violate some of the former design guidelines of making everything more easy or frictionless or efficient. But then, of course, it is important how you communicate it in your design, that it is clear that this
2: is on purpose. Like we mentioned to you before, the season is about magic. Yeah. And in my head, magic and design have quite a lot to do with each other. Again, I have this question in two parts. So the first part is, what is the magic of happy life? And the second is, what is the magic or like how can design be magical when delivering or helping us to live a happy life?
0: I like the second part of your question, because sure. <laughs> I am not an expert in magic by any means. But when I think of magic, I actually think more about magical So more about the adjective. So what is a magical moment? A magical moment might be something extraordinarily beautiful. For me, oftentimes, that is something that is actually more ordinary than extraordinary. And maybe that's something that could also apply to design for well-being. So how can you introduce or make people aware of magical moments in their life? They might be the small moments, they might be the everyday encounters that they have things that they can already be grateful for, taking notice of things around them rather than only striving for efficiency and rushing through, pausing for a moment, thinking of what is important to me. Perhaps having designed solutions that offer them ways to live a life that is more pleasurable and meaningful to them, that aligns more with their values, that might align more with values that we share in our society I think that could be quite
2: magical like this conversation yeah (laughs) if you were to think about either the most magical moment in your life or perhaps the most magical design that you've ever seen what would it be
0: the most magical moment in my life I could not point a finger to one moment It's the small encounters that I take in. Sometimes it's even the surprising realization that something that might not look so happy or good at first sight are more deep when you look at it a second time. So, for example, when I left Berlin, I was really sad, leaving my friends behind, leaving the places behind here that really grew on me. And then I realized wow, being sad actually means that this is important to me, that I care about these people and that these people care about me. And then I thought that being sad is so beautiful that it made me happy again. (laughs) It It was a magical um,
1: transformation.
0: Yeah, it was a magical transformation in a sense. So I don't know, I don't strive for the big things, but it might be magical moments. Like I mean, this work fills me with a lot of, pleasure and meaning. Sometimes if a student comes up to me years later and says, your course or your work had such an impact on me as a designer, wow, that, oh, even now I get goosebumps from that. <laughs> uh, you know, that that moves me. So I think magical moments are the ones that move me and they're oftentimes triggered by other people.
2: And I hope to give back to other people to move them. If you were to recommend a magical book, for designers, what would it be? A magical book
0: for designers. Well, there are some classics that age gracefully. One of them is Don Norman's Design of Everyday Things. The other being Victor Papanek's Design for the Real World. They're actually more contemporary now than ever before. From psychology, oh, oh, there are so many. I really enjoyed Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. A good primer on positive psychology is the How of Happiness by Sonja Libremirski And your personal favorite? Oh, I have to choose? Yeah. <laughs> Terrible, One. right?
2: We are awful in that sense.
0: No. <laughs> I cannot choose a book. (laughs) (laughs) So in a
1: sense, you are saying just stay curious and absorb anything.
0: In a way, I'm like a a sponge. I like to absorb everything. Be it what I just witness in everyday life. What do I see on the street? What do I hear people talk about? You talk about magic. Maybe it's good to think about a speculative design. What futures do we want to live in? Probably every... Utopia is also a dystopia in its own right. But what can we learn from the past? Where do we live in the moment, but also having a vision and looking into the future and daring to speculate, to engage people in conversation about these speculations. So, Is this something that is worthwhile pursuing or why not? We can learn a lot from that.
2: Anna, thank you so very much for finding the time for us today and having this conversation. And I do hope that this is the first one, but not the last one.
0: Thank you. And I hope so, too. Many more to come.
2: (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com.
0: So how do you define magic?